You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. As Michael mentioned this morning, we're returning to the book of Acts. Uh, So if you have Bibles, you can make your way to Acts chapter 18. Uh, If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, page 927 uh, is where you'll find Acts chapter 18. And Jen's talking about Advent. Crazy enough, that's only 11 weeks or so away. That'll that'll go really fast. It always does in the fall. Uh, So between now and Advent, we're going to walk through the final chapters of the book of Acts and complete that study that we began all the way back in February. Uh, If you are brand new with us, or if you have jumped in with Liberty Church over the summer months as we were in the Psalms, uh, I'm confident that you'll be able to to jump in and catch up. If it would ever be helpful to go back, uh, we'd invite you to do that. If you go to our website, you can find both the audio and video uh, from the sermons from the first 17 chapters of the book of Acts. You can go back and and do the full catch-up if that would uh, would be helpful. Also wanted to share that we are relaunching our Sermon B-Side podcast this week. Uh, that was a really, uh, as we heard from many of you, uh, uh, thankfully a helpful resource uh, where we answer any questions that you might have about the sermon uh, and also get to unpack certain parts of the sermon or parts of the text that we didn't really get to dive into more uh, in the sermon itself. So that's going to be relaunching uh, this week. We're going to miss Pastor John's smooth baritone voice. You have to settle for my my tenor tones, you know, a little fast talking tenor tones uh, more than John. But I do hope that continues to be a, a helpful resource to you, particularly as Bible study groups are relaunching uh, this week. And as Elise mentioned, today's the last day to sign up for those. So if you haven't yet, uh, head to the kickoff after and, and do that there. Like any of your favorite streaming shows, Michael did a little bit of this, but we need a recap. We need a recap of the book of Acts. So previously... In the book of Acts, I don't have the montage of the film clip, so you just have to settle for me talking through it. But previously in the book of Acts, Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. That happened in chapter 1. The Holy Spirit came to indwell and to empower his followers at Pentecost. The church grew and the church was scattered both by persecution and by intentional efforts uh, that they took to go spread the good news of Jesus around the Mediterranean world. The first seven deacons, or really what was the the precursor to the office of deacon, the first seven uh, of those men were called. One of them, Stephen, was stoned to death while a man named Saul stood by giving approval. Saul, not long after that, met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus actually met Saul uh, on the road to Damascus. Not long after that, Antioch became a hub of mission for the early church. And from there, Saul, or Paul as he more commonly becomes known for the rest of his life, uh, and various companions of his are sent out on missionary journeys. So as we kind of get to where we were, as we were closing out the first half of the series, Paul has now completed his first missionary journey. He's in the middle of his second. He'll be wrapping that up here in chapter 18. Uh, And in chapter 17, where we left off back in May, we left Paul in Athens. So now as we get into chapter 18, Paul is traveling 50 miles or so west uh, to the city of Corinth. And that's where we're picking up uh, this study. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is the book of Acts, chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, 
because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and sisters and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencria, he had, his, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. This would be the church in Jerusalem that Luke is referring to here as he writes that. Greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed." For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that you would open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. That as your scriptures have been read and as your word is proclaimed, that we might truly hear what you are saying to us today. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. What is the the book of Acts about? Uh, As we have said before in this series, though it's, it's been a little while, Acts is about the Spirit of God empowering Jesus' church 
to advance God's mission. Acts is about the Spirit of God empowering Jesus' church to advance God's mission. Uh, There are a lot of questions about what is descriptive versus what is prescriptive in this book. In other words, what is simply describing the story of the early church as it unfolded, and what, on the other hand, is prescriptive or meant for us to practice and to emulate ourselves as as God's people and people of the church today. We're going to keep weaving in and out of that over the the coming weeks in the book of Acts, Uh, though a lot of this book is descriptive. Participating in God's mission is one of those prescriptive things. It's our calling, it's our privilege to carry on this mission of God, this mission of Jesus in our time and in our place. And so today, we're going to consider a culture of mission, a culture of mission, Uh, mission is one of uh, what we refer to as the nine rhythms of grace for Liberty Church. Practices that are always meant to be part of our lives as we respond to the grace we've been shown in Jesus. So what does it look like to celebrate and participate in God's mission? What does it look like to see people come to faith in Jesus? Uh, To see people grow and strengthened in in that faith? If we were to survey the New Testament, we could compile a very long list of answers to that question of what this looks like. But here in Acts 18, we see some critical components of a culture of mission. Uh, This is not by any means an exhaustive list. Uh, For example, there's no mention of prayer here, and that's a very critical component of a culture of mission. But five things that we see in Acts 18 that we're going to touch on today. Passion, place, persistence, partnership, and promise. Passion, place, persistence, partnership, and promise. So we'll just walk our way through those with the the time we've got this morning. So first is passion. At the core of a culture of mission is passion for people to know and to believe in Jesus. And after Paul's own conversion, we start to feel and see and observe this passion seeping through on almost every other page of the book of Acts, and especially then in, in the letters that Paul writes that we have in the New Testament. The strongest glimpse we get of that here in Acts 18 comes in Paul's response to those Jews in Corinth who oppose him and revile him. As we read there, he he shakes out his garments. He shakes the dust off of his garments. And he says there in verse 6, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now that is a striking comment and perhaps sounds to our modern ears very unloving. But I want you to know this morning, I want you to know from Scripture this morning, Paul has deep love for his fellow Jewish men and women. More love probably than you and I have for almost anyone else in the world. Paul will go on to write in the book of Romans that if possible, he would be cut off for the sake of his fellow Jewish men and women. He would actually trade his own salvation for theirs. He would take their place and let, him, let them take his. And so we have to ask ourselves when we think about Paul and the kind of love he has for people, like, would we actually ever say that and mean it about another person, that we would trade our own salvation for theirs? It's very few people that we love to that kind of level, if any. And from that love, Paul has this passion to see the gospel proclaimed and believed. It's a a beautiful burden that orients and directs his life. As he also writes at the beginning of the book of Romans, I am under obligation to both Jews 
and Greeks. In other words, Paul says, I have a debt to repay. Not to Jesus. Not a debt to Jesus. His grace is free. That debt's paid. The debt, the obligation is to other people, both Jews and Gentiles, who have not yet heard about Jesus. So it's a little bit like this. Last week, uh, someone handed me a donation check for Liberty Tampa, for the new church plant, Pastor John and Jess. They just moved down to Tampa like a week ago. Someone handed me a, a donation check for them. And the moment they handed me that check, I was in debt. I was under an obligation, not to the person who handed it to me, but something was given to me that wasn't meant to terminate with me. I was a conduit. The funds were passing through me in order to reach their intended recipient. And as long as that check sat in my pocket, it's a burden. It's a debt. If I'm a person of integrity, which I hope I am, then the longer that check is in my pocket, the greater the burden I feel. Like, this is not mine to hold on to. I've got to find a way to get that check to Liberty Tampa, Liberty Tampa's account. It's a little bit of how Paul carries the gospel. He knows he's been given an incredible gift, and without downplaying in any way the, the real love and grace and joy that is his in Jesus, the gospel is for him too, and he rejoices about that all over the place in his letters in particular. But he also has to pass it on. He's, he's in debt to the people who haven't heard yet. And it's this sense of burden or obligation or debt that fuels his passion. It's why I'm convinced he shakes out his garments. He's upset. He, he wants people to believe, not oppose. But of course, he can't control their response. All he can do is to share and to teach and to testify and to try to persuade these people. And at that point, when he has done those things, he's no longer in debt to them. He is now innocent, as he says, of his responsibility. I want to ask each of you to consider this morning, do you have this kind of passion for the gospel? Do you have this kind of passion for other people to know and to believe in Jesus? Do you have something of this sense of debt, of burden, of obligation to be a, a conduit of God's saving grace, not the terminus of it? Often, we, we can make the sovereignty of God, his complete control of all things, we can make that an excuse. You know, God is in control. I can't save anyone. I can't control anyone's response. That's 100% true. 100% true. But in Scripture and in Paul's life and in our lives, that is always meant to be a comfort, not an excuse. And there's all the difference in the world between the sovereignty of God being our comfort and the sovereignty of God being our excuse. Paul is driven by this passion to pay forward the gospel that's been entrusted to him. And so we see throughout his life and ministry, if there is something that is within his power to do so that another person might hear and understand, he does it. He's going to do it. And only when those other people reject Christ does he then fall back, collapse even into the sovereignty of God and say, I've done all I can. And then, as we even read here, keeps looking for other people who might be receptive. And he just keeps going. If you're someone who is already driven by this kind of burden and passion for people to know Jesus, be comforted, truly, by the sovereignty of God. You can only do what you have the power to do. You can't control other people's response. If, however, you don't have this kind of passion, 
See the, the burden, see the obligation that you have as a Christian. The grace, the salvation that you have been given by Jesus, it is for you. And don't minimize that in any way. It is for you and for your good. But it's also for others. It's also for others. You are not in debt to Jesus. You need not and you cannot pay him back. That debt, thanks be to God, is paid. There is no debt back to Jesus. But you are indebted to others. That, that check in your pocket, so to speak, has someone else's name on it. So let that ignite, let that reignite your passion to share the good news of Jesus. The second component that we see of a culture of mission in Acts 18 is place. Place. Uh, in our pursuit of mission, often, I think, uh, we become way too dependent on the place of the local church, like this physical space, this gathering, and or uh, the leaders of a local church. Paul, on the other hand, along with the, the Christians of the early churches we see in the New Testament, they actually take the gospel out and it really doesn't matter the place that they are. They just find a place that they can talk with people who don't yet know Jesus and help them understand. On his missionary journeys, Paul often starts in the Jewish synagogue. That's often his starting place. There are, uh, at this point in history, Jewish people spread all throughout the Mediterranean world. And so there are synagogues in most of these towns and these cities that Paul travels to on his journeys. So he'll often go to the synagogue first, teach there as long as he is able, as long as he's permitted to. And usually in that process, he'll see some Jewish men and women uh, put their faith in Christ. That's what happens in Corinth, as we've, as we've read in Acts 18. But when he's then eventually opposed and reviled, when he's eventually kicked out, where does Paul go? Where does he go? Right next door. Right next door to the home of a Gentile convert who lives literally next door to the synagogue. Okay, side note, I'm pretty sure this is where pharmacies get their corporate strategy. So like when CVS puts a building on a, in a spot in town, where does Rite Aid or Walgreens, if you're from the Midwest, like I was, where do they set up shop? Do they go like a mile or two down the road and reach another neighborhood? No, they always put their pharmacy right next to the one that's already built and vice versa. Paul does that in Corinth. I can't meet in the synagogue anymore. People are already used to walking by here. Here's where we're going to meet now. This guy's house next to the synagogue. And I say that, all I have to say, uh, we need places where we are having meaningful interactions and relationships with people who at this point are not Christians. Where we can share the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. If we're going to create and be part of a culture of mission, we have to be in those kinds of spaces. Hopefully, the, the church is one of them. Hopefully, even this church, even this physical space is a place where people who don't believe in Jesus can come and can bring their questions and they don't have to have all that stuff figured out before they actually gather with us in this space. But the church is not the only place. And I would argue it's often not the best place because in our society, there are many people who wouldn't dare to darken the door of this church or any church. That, that actually takes, try to put yourself in the mind of a person that's just not used to this or that maybe has been part of the church and has been hurt by it in a substantial way and coming back just feels impossible. It takes a certain amount of vulnerability. It takes a certain amount of effort to actually walk through the doors of a local church. You already have to be leaning in a decent bit if you're going to do that. 
So let's reflect this morning. Are you in places where you're having meaningful interactions and conversations with people who aren't Christians? Is that true of you in your life right now? Does your life intersect with non-Christians in significant ways? And if you're not already in spaces where that is happening or where that could happen, how can you, how can you get there? If you get held up, hung up, stuck with how to do this or where to begin, I would encourage you, let, let us help you. Uh, reach out to our elders, our deacons, a member of our staff, because I know, truly, you're busy. You are busy people. I know that many of you just don't have the margin in your life to add something else. The good news about this is that often, this doesn't require adding a whole new thing. It doesn't require more activity. Often what this requires is just more intentionality, to actually have different eyes to see the places that God has already put you, and then to step into those places and to see the people that are there with the eyes of Jesus, with new eyes. But find a way to be in places where non-Christians are. At a base level, a, a culture of mission means we, we can't hide. We can't isolate ourselves from people who really need him. So third, third, persistence. Persistence. And by persistence, what we see in Acts 18, I mean both time and commitment. Time and commitment. So Paul spends nearly two years in Corinth. There's this 18-month period that he refers to, that Luke refers to there. And then a couple of verses later, it says, and then he spent many more days there. So most scholars think it's about two years he's in Corinth. And apart from Ephesus, where he's going to spend about three years, and we're going to get to that in the next couple chapters of Acts, this is far longer than Paul spends in most of the places that he travels. In our pursuit of mission, we often want quick, visible results. And if we don't find them, we give up or we move on. But Paul, though he does move on from the synagogue, from that specific location, he does not move on from the people of Corinth until truly he has the Spirit of God release him from the work that he has been called to do in that place. He stays there, comparatively speaking, a long time. He lets the gospel saturate that city, that area over weeks and months and even almost two years. Then beyond that, when he does leave Corinth and he starts to wind down this second missionary journey, he visits Ephesus briefly. He'll be back. Then he goes to the church in Jerusalem and then returns to Antioch, which is that sending base, that hub of his journeys. And then it says there in verse 23, after some time, and then he sets out on his third journey, the start of his third journey, where does he go as he begins that third journey? Not to new places, back to some of the very same places he's already been on his first and second journey. And as it says there in verse 23, he's not doing pioneering mission work at that point. He's strengthening the disciples, the men and women who already have put their faith in Jesus. So a culture of mission is not about the number of converts. It's actually about making disciples and then seeing those disciples, those followers of Jesus, continually formed and strengthened. In his letter to the Galatians, this region that Paul actually goes to there at the start of his third missionary journey, in, the letter of, in his letter to the Galatians, he writes in Galatians 4, and this verse has become kind of a, a pillar of who I hope to be as a pastor when I grow up someday. 
And he says there in Galatians, my beloved children for whom I am in the pains of childbirth again until Christ is formed in you. He agonizes not over their initial salvation, but, but for Christ to be formed in them. People who already are walking with Jesus, he's agonizing over the ongoing process of their growth and their sanctification. He has a long view and a commitment to these men and women who have become Christians. He is not interested, as much as he is interested in spreading the gospel around the world, he's not interested in, in notching his belt, patting himself on the back and moving on. As our passion for Jesus to be known drives us to share the gospel, we need to have the same kind of long view. We need persistence. Persistence that is not discouraged by those times when we have few or no visible results. Persistence that doesn't just run to what's easier or, or, the, or gravitate toward the path of least resistance. If you are someone who has a natural passion for mission, don't be discouraged if other people, if other Christians around you don't yet share that. Don't yet share that. If that's you this morning, if you're at Liberty Church and sometimes you find yourself going like, man, I wish this church did a better job of sharing the gospel. I wish this church was more missional. I wish this church did evangelism in a more effective way. Please help us. If that is there in your soul, help us. Help us to get better at this. You can do that by both persisting in your own pursuit of mission Keep going, even if you don't feel like a lot of other people are helping you or doing it with you. Keep going, and at the same time, persist with other Christians who might not be as far down that road as you are. That's how a culture of mission grows, is when God puts certain people into that church community, into that environment that have that natural burden, and they, they lead in that, even if other people aren't joining them at that moment. And that leads to the fourth component of a culture of mission, which is partnership. Partnership. A culture of mission requires more than one person. It requires Christians working together in partnership, becoming, as Paul will refer to, even some of the people we meet in Acts 18, fellow workers for the sake of the gospel. Fellow workers for the sake of the gospel. We meet here in this chapter three people who become major players in the early church. There's Priscilla and Aquila, uh, fellow tent makers and missionaries. Uh, they joined Paul both in Corinth and then in Ephesus. We also meet a man named Apollos, an incredibly talented teacher, an incredibly gifted speaker, an eloquent man, as Luke describes him, who God uses in incredible ways. And these partnerships, these dynamics are amazing. I don't know if you're a person that reads like leadership books and books about like team dynamics, if you're like in a corporate culture and you kind of do those kinds of things. Zoom out for just a second and think about the relationships that these people have with each other as fellow workers for the sake of the gospel. More formed Christian leaders, like Paul first with Aquila and Priscilla and then Aquila and Priscilla with Apollos, more formed Christian leaders who aren't threatened by the substantial gifts of a newer, more talented leader coming after them. And then a talented new leader who's genuinely teachable and submissive. We skip over this in Acts 18 very easily. Apollos receives instruction from Priscilla and Aquila. That's amazing. 
That's amazing. How often does a really talented young person just say, well, forget the old guard. I'm already being effective in what I'm doing. I don't need to learn from the people that have been doing this longer than I have. There's, a, there's no sense, and then there's no sense of, of competition or insecurity from Priscilla and Aquila. Like often established leaders go like, oh, that guy's talented. He's been more effective than I am. I'm a little nervous about that. I'm a little insecure. I feel a sense of competition with this person coming after. I'm going to withhold a little bit and rather than encourage them the way Priscilla and Aquila encourage Apollos. Imagine if this kind of encouragement and cooperation were present in the church today. Uh, In any one congregation, that would be phenomenal, let alone multiple churches in a city or in a region partnering together like this. Think of the culture of mission that would establish in an environment, that would exist in an environment like that. We need other Christians in our pursuit of mission. We need the gifts that they have that we don't have, that I don't have. They need, we need the personality that they have. That's not my personality. It's going to be more effective with certain kinds of people. And instead of the competition, instead of the insecurity, which just even in church cultures tends to reign so powerfully, instead of that, we need talented people to be teachable and we need experienced people to be encouragers. I'm going to say that again because I think that's just critical and I pray that that's true of us and becomes more true of us in days to come. We need talented people who are teachable and experienced people who are encouragers. Two other just brief implications as it relates to partnership. First, if you're someone who does feel even somewhat equipped to share the gospel, to share the good news of Jesus with others, help equip other people. Help equip other people. You don't have to be a pastor or an elder or have some kind of title here in this church. You don't have to have a seminary education to do that. If you can conversationally articulate the hope that you have in Jesus, then in your Bible study group or over coffee or a meal with someone else, help other people become more confident, become more equipped to do the very same thing. If, on the other hand, you don't feel equipped, then speaking on behalf of the elders of Liberty Church, please break down our doors with your questions and with your actual struggles and hangups in this. Blow up our phones. I I invite it. Please do that. Uh, We don't want to plan and to host seminars or to introduce tools that aren't helpful and that you'll never use. With passion and with persistence in real places with real people, Tell us what you actually need. Tell us what you're experiencing and where you feel like you need to be more equipped. If it involves seminars, if it involves tools, great. But I am just increasingly convinced these things need to actually come from the front lines. They need to come from the ground up and not the top down. I don't, I don't want to find myself in a place where, for example, I'm handing you an Evangicube, which is a really corny tool that was used several decades back. I don't want to have to like hand those out and try to convince you to use them because I don't want to use them. I don't think they're particularly effective anymore in our culture. So from the actual real people you're interacting with, let that drive your need to be equipped in real ways and then help, let, let us know how we can help you in that because we want to do that. And then the other thing here with partnership, decompartmentalize your relationships. Maybe some of you don't need to do that. Maybe some of you live a really integrated kind of life. But a lot of us live compartmentalized lives relationally. And so what I'm saying here is, Invite your non-Christian friends and family to know your Christian friends and family and vice versa. God may actually have prepared someone else better than you to be the one that reaches 
one of your friends or family members. It might not actually be you. It might not actually be your words that are ultimately persuasive to a person. And though that will, on the one hand, be discouraging because when it's people you actually love dearly and they're close to you, you, you want to be the one used by God in their life. You want to be that person that, that helps them to come to see the beauty and the worth of Jesus. But on the bigger picture kingdom of God scale, that's a beautiful thing. It's partnership. It's becoming fellow workers for the sake of the gospel. Apollos. Apollos was incredibly effective in persuading people about the truth of Jesus. And he was so effective, we read this more in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter there, that in Corinth, some Christians end up making tribes. So there's like the original, there's the OG church in Corinth. I'm team Paul. I was here from the earliest days when Paul came. Now there's another team, team Apollos. And I say, they say, I'm team Apollos. And the Christians are kind of fighting with each other. Like, which team are you on? Which person actually convinced you that this was real? And which person baptized you? And you know what Paul says when he gets wind of that? Who cares? Who cares? Who am I? Who is Apollos? The whole point of all of this is that people would see Jesus, not us. And that freed Paul. And that frees you and me. We are not and we need not be, friends, insecure competitors with one another. When it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are partners in the gospel. Fifth and finally, promise. Promise. Even more than his passion. What is it that most drives Paul? What is it that will most stir and motivate and sustain a culture of mission in our own lives, in our own church? It's Jesus' promise. It's Jesus' promise. After Paul has been laboring a while among the people of Corinth, he has this vision. And Jesus appears to him in this vision, and we read there in verses 9 and 10. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. Why? For I am with you. For I am with you. Jesus says, no one will attack or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. That is the gospel promise that you and I carry into mission. I am with you, Jesus says. It's the same promise he made to his disciples in the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, as he's about to ascend to heaven, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And behold, what? I am with you even to the end of the age. In our pursuit of mission, we are never alone. And in fact, the one that we are seeking to tell others about is with us and will be with us to the end of the age, he promised. So in reality, the gospel is not a check in your pocket. It's the spirit of the living God in you. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You're not carrying around a check to hand to somebody else. You have the spirit of God in you. And that is what fuels mission. And as if he needed more, Paul then gets this specific promise from Jesus about Corinth. I have many people in this city who are mine. In other words, press on, Paul. Keep laboring. Don't move on too quickly. Now that promise is descriptive. It's a promise that's given to Paul, not that's given to you and me. The same thing is true for the promise of safety, that no harm will come upon him 
in Corinth. That is a specific promise for a specific person in a specific place. As we know from the life of Paul, he did get hurt in many places that he went to. So he didn't have like a a broad promise that he would never get hurt. He got hurt a lot. So don't claim that specific promise for yourself. But at the same time, as we heard Michael share with us as he led liturgy this morning, Jesus said in John 10, there are other sheep whom Jesus will bring into his fold. And as Jesus said in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In other words, even if we don't have a specific promise like Paul did, the gospel is always advancing. People are always putting their trust in Jesus and thereby entering the kingdom of God. So though it is not a promise to you and me like it was to Paul, I would invite you this morning, dare to believe that this is true about the Harrisburg region. Dare to believe that this is true about your own neighborhood, your own workplace, the places that God has put you. That Jesus has there in these places many people who are his, even if they don't know it yet. Even if they don't don't want it at this point. Sometimes I sit near the window in our church's fellowship hall. And as I watch you know, all these cars go by and like cut each other off on the on-ramp to five, from 581 to 15 right here, which just happens every five seconds. I, I ask God to give me a different kind, of, different kind of eyes. I ask God to remind me of the thousands of people that drive, drive by just this physical space on any given day. And I ask him to just reawaken my, my eyes to see that there are many people in this region And to dare to imagine that some of them might belong to Jesus. And that maybe that's even our place and our opportunity to step into their lives and share the gospel with them. Dare to believe that with me, will you? That the Spirit of God empowers Jesus' church to advance God's mission. And it's not just Jesus' church anonymously. The Spirit of God empowers you. Liberty Church. This local expression of Jesus' capital C church empowers you to advance God's mission. And Jesus promised, I am with you. I am with you. So with Jesus then, let your passion for mission be renewed. And in partnership with one another, in places where non-Christians are, and with persistence, dare to believe that Jesus has many people in this region who belong to him. By the grace of God, May we find them. And then through us, may they find him. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, our God, you have given to us the glorious gospel of our risen Savior and Master Jesus Christ. And that is a gospel, thanks be to you, that is for us. We are not a cog in your cosmic machine. It is good news for me and is good news for every single person in this room as we come to this table this morning, remind us of that, that the gospel is for us. Help us to also see though that it is for others and, it, and your grace is not meant to terminate upon us, but to, we are to be conduits through which it passes. And so grant that as we joyfully receive the good news for ourselves, that we would gratefully share it with others. And in all of that, May we always point to you, Jesus. May we always point to you. It's by your grace alone we are what we are. And so we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. 
To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.